Well, good evening again, everybody. I'm so glad to be with you here this evening. If you have a Bible in front of you, or with you, or on your phone, would you flip toward the back, toward a book called 1 Peter? I'm going to read the very first introductory words of this letter that we think Mr. Peter himself wrote. That would be Simon Peter, the famous disciple that walked with Jesus. And we think he wrote this letter. And from the intro, you're going to see that he spread it and circulated it to a bunch of folks that were living all around a region of what's known as modern-day Turkey. And these were a bunch of Christians scattered around, scratching their heads, wondering if this Jesus thing is really worth all the fussing and cussing and struggle that they're experiencing in a strange land. And so these words at the beginning of this letter are an encouragement to people just like us that go out and get a little bit banged up and a little bit bumped and bruised and we look up to the heavens and we say, hey, are you still there? And so Peter starts off strong and hot with this letter saying who you are and what you've been born into. That's what we're going to be exploring. And it's just as important for us today as it was for them then because the world gives us no shortage of lumps and false identities and temptations to abandon the way of life. And so as I mentioned earlier during our scripture and prayer time, Easter is a season. It's not just a day, it's a season. And I think that it's a season in the church historically because it takes us many days, more days than Lent, to get out of our heads and into our bones the reality of the resurrection. And so what Peter will remind us, what the season of Easter reminds us, is that the resurrection just wasn't good news for Jesus, it's good news for you. And in some mysterious way, even though you're getting banged up and beat up and bedraggled and beat down out there, the resurrection is for you. That in some mysterious way, if you've been united with Jesus in death, you've also been united with him in life. And so this is our foundation. This is our identity. This is what we celebrated last week in the waters of baptism. That you've been united with Jesus in death and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. And yes, it's hard out there, but your life is hidden with Christ. You have a new identity. You've been born into a living hope. And you have an inheritance kept in heaven for you. I told you, he comes in hot and this introduction to this letter is where we'll be spending the next few moments. So I hope you're with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start at the very beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's going to talk about your identity. Ready? To God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. He's just going to throw the whole trinity in there in that intro. And grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
Now, verses 3 to 9 are one long, hot sentence to start this letter. In English, we love punctuation, and we don't so much like run-on sentences, so we miss some of the energy. But look with me now, beginning in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, by the way, faith that's of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, This may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Hey, is your head spinning? That's a pretty rock and roll intro right there. We're going to unpack it, but I think and I hope that what you get to walk away with is an encouragement. When the world is out to beat you down, and you think that the resurrection is just some lofty idea, no, 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 he wants you to get it into your bones. He wants you to remember That we are born into this. First, a new identity. That's how he started his salutation. Second, we're born into a living hope. It's active. And then third, he's going to show us that we're born into a heavenly inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And so then he closes that introduction by saying, because of all of this, Yes, even though you suffer, hold on, because God will make it up to you in the end. And even though you suffer now, all of these things, new identity, living hope, heavenly inheritance, are reasons enough to bring enough joy that you can sing about it. That if you just hold on in faith and trust, you'll make it to the end, which is the salvation of your souls. We're born into a new identity, a living hope, and a heavenly inheritance. That's where we're going to be spending our time. But now is a good time for me to tell you two things. The first is that right before I left, and I left late, I had printed some extra sheets of paper in case the projector didn't work. And so the printer had messed them up, so I grabbed a stack of papers, I folded them up, and threw them in the recycling bin. And I ran out the door, and I got here. And then, and only then, during the second song, I realized, oh, that was my outline. (laughs) So my outline is presently 
in my recycling bin just up the road. That's the first thing I'll tell you. The second thing I'll tell you is that this was the first sermon I ever preached to adults. These weren't the points, but maybe I can recall 15 years ago, my Lord of the Rings analogy that I'm sure I used and some other stuff. So buckle up. It's going to be a fun night. But the first thing you'll see that we're born into is a new identity, a new identity. If you look back with the Bible open in verses 1 to 2, he comes in hot and he says, look, I'm writing to you that are scattered abroad through this region, that you feel that you are isolated and beat up. Let me tell you who you really are. And he says this strange term of elect and chosen. And one thing you need to understand about God is that he doesn't work in abstractions. He wants to work his heavenly life and love and light into living, actual people. God doesn't just say these decrees so that we could think about them. He says, no, no, I want you to live in them. So God has always wanted to work this stuff out with a people. He says, I want you to be my people, and I will be your God. I want you to live this life. I want to breathe my life into you. I want to show you the way of flourishing. God has always had a people. For the first few millennia, it was the people of Israel. And then Jesus came and showed God's true heart and the mystery that actually he's expanding his people. And it's no longer just within the boundary markers of Israel. It is a transnational, transracial, boundary-breaking, rule-breaking, and expanding love that says anybody that wants to come, come. And they come through Jesus. Not through a set of cultural rules or ideas. He's deepening and widening and expanding the way and people of God. So God has always set out to elect and choose and say, I'm going to have a people. So these people, beat up, bedraggled, scattered around, you're my people that I want, that I've chosen. You'll see also that they were sanctified and sprinkled. Sanctified is a fancy word for making holy, set apart. In seminary, I remember a professor said, y'all want to know what holy means? I'll tell you. And I've never forgotten this. He says, when people come to visit and they stay at our house, because he was from another country, he says, my wife puts away the old ratty towels in the bathroom and, and my wife gets the super fancy nice towels and she puts them out for our guests she says, one day she caught me with one of the super fancy nice towels. She goes, uh-uh, those are set apart. Those are special. And when I think about sanctified, holy, set apart, I think about something special and set apart. I think about towels. <laughs> You're a people that set apart, called out. And then he uses this language of sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, when they received the Ten Commandments, they sealed it and said, you're a special, called out, set apart, holy people. You're my people. And he sprinkled them with blood, which sounds strange and weird, but it was so significant. 
You're my people, and it cost me something to get you. And so Peter, well into the intro, is saying, this is your identity. You're chosen. You're set apart. You're sealed by a costly blood. I am showing you where my money is, where my mouth is. I've ransomed you, redeemed you, set you apart your mind. You're not just sprinkled with the blood of a lamb like your ancestors at Mount Sinai were in Exodus. You're sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, who's the lamb of God, who's taken away the sins of the world. You're sanctified. You're set apart. You're chosen. You're all of these things. And just to really bring it home, he's going to call them exiles. The reason that you're getting beat up, the reason you feel out of place, scattered around this land is because, yeah, you're chosen, you're separate, you're us, you're sprinkled, you're mine. The word for us today, if we were to fully embrace this new identity as God's people, it means that you should not feel too comfortable with the way and groups of the world. Let me say it one more step further. You cannot expect Jesus to rubber stamp and wholesale endorse your conservative agenda. You should not expect Jesus to rubber stamp and wholesale endorse your progressive agenda. You cannot sit there and say, I am a so-and-so party of the political system, and that is my true identity. Jesus shows us when he walked the earth in Galilee and now today with his kingdom that transcends boundaries and parties that if that is your primary marker and identity, you need to seriously consider why you're so comfortable. Because if Jesus can't wholesale rubber stamp and endorse all the groups and the parties that we align ourselves with and say, this is the way, this is the only way, this is who we are, this is what it means to be a Christian, I would think Jesus comes and takes your little neat and tidy boundaries, props it open, and says, are you sure about that? You should not feel so comfortable in a culture that is rampant with consumerism. You should not feel so comfortable by saying, here's the way, and anyone that doesn't do this ain't a real Christian. Jesus knocks on the door and says, and what is a Christian exactly? It's someone who says yes to me and lays everything down at the cross and says, not my way, but yours. Not my life, but yours. Your exiles. You should not say yes and amen to every thing that comes out of cable news I shouldn't have to say this but I have to keep saying this why man because we can have coffee and I'll tell you what I've been drinking deep of this week too we're all swimming in these waters and it takes the scriptures it takes the person and example of Jesus to come back and get our attention and say hey 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 let's 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 we've drifted a little bit here You've gotten way too comfortable. Fill in the blank. Consumerism, progressivism, conservatism, whatever ism that's not Jesus needs to come underneath his lordship. We are exiles. You've got dual citizenship. 
Go vote, go be active, go do this or do that. But you hold that passport underneath the passport that says kingdom of God. Because he did not come to make a Christian nation. He came to found a kingdom that will never end. So there will never be a savior on Capitol Hill. Put that to bed. Never ever. There is not a nation, there's a kingdom. He's come to expand and enlarge so that his glory and goodness may never end. We have a new identity, a new reality. And if that's all external, and he's reminding us, hey, you're gods, you're gods, you're gods. There's some things internally that cause us to forget as well. So a practice that I've been trying to work out because I've really struggled with this of late. I have listened to all the wrong voices and it may not be the isms as much now in my life, but it is the you are what you do thing that tries to supplant my identity. It's the you are what you have that tries to become my identity. Or how about this? You are blank. What is it for you? You're not worthy. You're not good enough. You are not enough. You are not talented, capable. You are not a success. There are these things internally that creep up and they're false narratives. They're the stories we tell ourselves that seek to remove us from the reality of who we are in Christ and whose we are as God's exiles but chosen and elect. So a practice I've tried to live into with those internal issues is to audit your thoughts. Notice them. Some of them just pass by. We're so used to our internal monologue that we just let it run. Pause and audit your thoughts. Why do I keep repeating, you stink? You can't do it. You did it again. Look at you. Audit your thoughts. And once you snatch one, ask, okay, is this true? What's the story I'm telling myself here? This is a great relational conflict question as well. What's the story I'm hearing? Ask, is this true? What's the story I'm telling myself? What's being received? Hey, am I right here? What I'm hearing is this, and that's when your partner, your friend, your coworker says, oh, man, I'm glad you asked. That is so not what I meant. But it starts by auditing your thoughts, then asking, okay, is this true? What's the story? What's I'm, what am I really hearing? And then step three, you adjust it with truth. James Bryan Smith wrote three great books, the first of which is called The Good and Beautiful God. And he deals with these false narratives. I'm not good enough. I'll never be forgiven. I won't work. And, I, you know, God just doesn't love me. And he says, no, those are bunk narratives. Get rid of them. And he says, what would it look like 
if you would look yourself in the mirror every morning for a week and says, I am one in whom Christ dwells. What happens when you're driving down the road and you feel that anxiety well up and you say something like, I am safe in the unshakable kingdom of God. Even if I get sideswiped on 635, I'll still be safe in the kingdom of God because I've hitched my wagon to him who is stronger than death. What does it look like to audit your thoughts? It's not if, it's when they breach the wall and they start to do their nasty work to tell you you're not enough. And then say, wait a minute, is this true? And then you say, wait, I don't think it is. So then number three, you adjust it with truth. Okay, if I am one in whom Christ dwells, when he was baptized, God looked at him and said, this is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If I'm in Christ, can that be true of me? Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Oh, so am I loved? If Christ is in me, Does that mean that I'm not trash? We talked about the external isms that try to derail our identity. We talked about the internal words and false narratives that try to derail our identity. 1 Peter 1-2 shows us our new identity. We're elect, exiles, sanctified, sprinkled. We are God's. Which is why he launches into a long sentence. And it's a sentence with three tenses of salvation. You'll notice if you look back through that we were saved. That was something that was past tense. And if you want to attach a theological word to it, that's justification. If you've said yes to Jesus, you're in the right. You're justified. You are on the right side of the verdict. When you said yes, you were buried and raised. You were saved. But then he says, you're being sanctified. There's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's that word I mentioned earlier, the holying, the setting apart. You're becoming like one of those special towels more and more. You are being saved. There's a present tense transformation taking place. And then ultimately at the end of that long sentence, he says, if you hold on in your faith, even though it's tried by fire and suffering, if you hold on because of God's work, you will be saved and you will achieve the salvation of your souls. There's a future tense, which if you want to attach a theological word is glorification. Salvation in three verb tenses. This is who you are. You were saved, brought out of the grave and raised to new life. You were justified. You are being saved. You are being transformed into the image of Jesus. And hold on, his work will bring you through. You will be saved when he comes in fullness. Though you haven't seen him, you will see him and you will be like he is, raised in glory to live forever. Amen? Amen. That's who you are. And because Jesus was raised, the second thing we see is that we were born into a living hope. I love this phrase, living hope. When we became the neighborhood church about seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, I kept toying with this idea of being called like living hope church because I was in a state of needing hope. 
And I thought about hope as this idea of breathing possibility where I only saw dead ends. A living hope breathes peace into anxiety. A living hope brings praise into sorrow. A living hope, watch, is active and adapted in the varied terrain of life. Try this on for size. Does your hope in Jesus work in the green pastures as well as it does in the hospital room and the valley of the shadow? If it doesn't, the good news is that hope is active and adaptive. And you can learn and cultivate and grow and faith ebbs and flows and your hope ebbs and flows. But if it works in the green pastures, it can work in the valley of the shadow. You just keep leaning in because our living hope is acred in Jesus. Have you noticed that? It's God's work. It's his great mercy. He's given us a new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus, because he's alive, your hope can be alive. I have a friend who has a strange and interesting practice that I may have mentioned to you. He says he contemplates his death. And I just go, ugh. And he goes, no, it's not as creepy as it sounds. But the Catholics have this prayer where they pray to Mary to intercede for them. And it has this phrase, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Is that right? He says, I just think about the hour of my death and I think about when all is stripped away, all my stuff, my success, all those false narratives, is my true identity gonna be one that's at rest in the arms of God who is love? I contemplate that moment Am I going to hitch my wagon? Is my hope rooted then, not just now? Sometimes it's easy to have hope when things look good. It's a wholly other experience to have a living hope in the face of death. One of the ways I think this has worked out in my life is a moment that Amy and I, about 12 years ago, were together at the untimely death of one of her family members, and it just wrecked us. It put us in contact with the fact that we are not promised tomorrow, we are not promised a long life, and so we were driving this long drive in her 98 Honda Civic down a country road, having laid to rest this woman who was taken too quickly, and both of us were sobbing. We had no words to comfort each other, we only had each other's presence and the shared tears of grief. And as we started to make some distance between us and that cemetery, I started to pay attention to the CD. Y'all remember CDs? The CD that was playing in the compact disc player that was connected to that cord for the cassette that gets punched into the tape deck because her 98 Honda Civic didn't have a CD player. So when that sucker wasn't skipping in that moment, it was playing, and it was playing a song whose refrain is simply, rescue is coming. Rescue is coming. Over and over again. 
And I didn't remember any words that came before. I don't remember much the words that came after. But I remember through our tears hearing over and over the refrain, rescue is coming. And I remember in that moment having followed Jesus in spits and starts, sometimes a saint, more like a sinner, for my whole young life. I had a sort of conversion experience again when I said stubbornly and frustratingly, I hate this feeling. I hate this loss. I hate cancer. I hate this illness. I hate the way this world tends to look more dark than light. But I'm going to stubbornly choose to believe that the light is winning. And I'm going to set myself on the certain hope, even though I feel uncertain, that rescue really is coming. And it may not come tomorrow or the next day, but to be a Christian is to be in the world as an exile, to feel the discomfort of death, and to stubbornly look to a living hope that says death is not the end. If Jesus was raised, and if I'm with Jesus, I'm going to be raised too. The strange and mysterious hope of Christianity is not that we would be a bunch of souls with angel wings floating on clouds. That may be some of us at this moment in God's presence, but understand we're not just born into a living hope. We're born into a heavenly inheritance waiting in the wings, waiting to be revealed. The end game is not a soul on a cloud. It's a body like Jesus that will never be touched by death again. And you say, what does it look like? I said, I don't know. Something like Jesus's did in the small glimpses we got in the Gospels. Well, when will it happen? When Jesus returns and he makes all things new. So the bodies that are buried at Restland and Williams, God's not even going to waste those. Every molecule, every atom is somehow going to be rescued and redeemed also. This is Christian hope. I spent too much time in Christian circles growing up thinking only about my soul. God cares about our soul. And those who have died in Christ, I believe, are present. Their essence, their soul, their spirit is present with God currently. But he ain't going to waste your body either. The historic and mysterious Christian hope is that he will raise us so that we might be like Jesus in some kind of heavenly inheritance. I wanted to believe it so much that I got a tattoo about it, that out of this coffin is a tree that my friend once said looks like broccoli, and I never talked to him again. <laughs> Just kidding. And it has these two doves, and it says, rise again. He's not going to waste our bodies either. And so there's this inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. It's waiting just off stage left. And someday Jesus will return and all those who've gone ahead of us will come with him. And he's going to renew heaven and renew earth that they may be one. And so listen, the glimmers that we see today on earth as it is in heaven, give us reasons to sing in the highs and lows of life. I see a little glimpse of what will be today. 
We live right now in the already reality of new creation, overlapping light in the darkness, but one day it will be fullness. So whatever you see that gives you life and light and hope now, sing and rejoice and know that it is a foretaste of what will come in fullness. I told you that I was late today, so I don't know if they did this or not. But every week before our worship gathering, when we're sitting back there chuckling and laughing, eventually we get to talking and praying. And the question that we ask each week of the worship team that will lead us is, what are your reasons to sing? And invariably, each week, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes it's silly, and we thank God for the little things, like the fun things we got to do. Sometimes it's the everyday things we don't pay attention enough to, that we woke up healthy and whole. And many times it's, I had a terrible week, but somehow God brought me through. Whatever glimmers you see in the midst of suffering and struggle or in the good What are your reasons to sing? Would you take a moment and write some down? Would you take a moment and actually answer this question? You had a mixed bag of a week. What are your reasons to sing? Peter has given us in his wild, rocking sentence by way of introduction, reminders that we have reasons to sing and celebrate Even though our faith is tested with fire and suffering, it's more precious than gold because we've been born into a new identity, into a living, active hope that stares death and darkness in the face and says, you don't get the last word. Because thirdly, he brought us and born us into a heavenly inheritance. If you're short on reasons to sing, let Peter bring you the good news that through the resurrection of Jesus, you can live this week as one in whom Christ dwells. You don't have to listen to the garbage the world and yourself tells you. Let Peter remind you that in spite of all the darkness, light is winning and there's reasons to celebrate in hope. And know that death is not the end. That those who are in Christ will know life now and always because of the great mercy and strength of God the Father who has raised Jesus and has raised us as well. Amen and amen. May God's grace and peace be yours in abundance, reminding you of the truth that you have been reborn into a living hope. Reborn for an eternal inheritance, held in reserve in heaven, that will never fade nor fail. So until we take hold of this inheritance, may we be thankful for simple things, for friendship, for daily bread, for good news. May we go from this place laboring in hope for things more precious than gold, faith, justice, and love. Go in peace.